Hey there, it's Olivia Allen Price, host of Bay Curious, the podcast. KQED Podcasts wants to thank listeners like you whose support makes this podcast possible. If you want to help us continue to make great content, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcasts. And thanks. From KQED. Do you hear that roar? It is the Pacific Ocean. I'm at Ocean Beach in San Francisco, and I am surrounded by, well, a whole lot of sand. And if you look south from sort of the main part of Ocean Beach, you'll notice there's a lot of these sand dunes that kind of emerge, you know, sort of out of the flat part of the beach. And what's pretty cool to imagine is in the mid-1800s, sort of at the beginning and into the middle of the gold rush, All of this that we're looking at towards Golden Gate Park, all of that, as far as you could see, would have been sand dunes. You walk a few hundred feet off the beach and you are in Golden Gate Park, which is one of probably the most beloved urban parks in all of America, maybe all of the world. It's over a thousand acres of lush European style park. Trees, grasses, flowers, plants, you name it. Anything but sand. Now the story of how this park transformed from basically a sandscape into this verdant place is quite the tale. One rumor going around is that a lot of horse manure and spit may have been the key to this transformation. Today, we'll find out. I'm Olivia Allen Price, and this is Bay Curious. Support for Bay Curious comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Committed to brewing things the right way since 1980, because when you're a family-run brewery, there's no other way to do it. Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, still family-owned, operated, and argued over. And be sure to stay tuned through the end of the show so you can play our monthly trivia game for a chance to win some cool prizes. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment, and if you love what you're hearing... And I know you love what you're hearing. Please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Today, producer Katrina Schwartz and I are exploring the early history of how San Francisco's Golden Gate Park got built. There are a lot of stories about how this park came to be. One tale goes that only a magical combination of horse manure and spit was enough to tame the sandy soil and make it rich enough for plants to grow. Now, I'm no gardener, but even to me, that sounds a little far-fetched. To find some definitive answers, we headed over to the northeast corner of the park. 
So this little path says Oak Woodlands Path. Oh, should we go up there? Yeah, let's check yeah. it out. The trees we walked through were here before anything else in the park. It's one of the few areas that remains relatively unchanged. This is an old growth forest. These would be descendants of the trees that were cut down for firewood during the gold rush. It predated the park. It predated um, European colonization here. We're here with Nicole Meldahl, the executive director of the Western Neighborhoods Project, a community history nonprofit focused on the west side of San Francisco. It's just behind the conservatory of flowers, kind of hidden. We decided to start here because it was this corner of the park, where trees grew naturally, that gave park creators the confidence they could make the rest of the park green. As beautiful as the oak grove is, we are still surrounded by the city. Trucks that back up are the worst. We kept going deeper and deeper into the park, hoping to find a quiet spot for our interview. Sorry, we're off-roading a little. I thought it was a path, but then it came not a path. Nicole says what we now know as Golden Gate Park, a lush place with winding pathways, protected dells, and lots of recreation, wasn't even part of the city at first. What did this place look like at the beginning of the gold rush? An 1853 map of this area called it the Great Sand Bank. So yeah, it was very empty, isolated. There were a few scattered like beach cottages for some um, adventurous folks. There were homesteaders out here. San Francisco's population skyrocketed during the years after the gold rush, and city leaders had big ambitions. But first, they needed more space. In the Outside Lands Act of 1866, the western half of the city became part of San Francisco. San Francisco has always thought of itself as like a great, amazing city, right? And it is. We definitely know it is. But really, it was the new kid in town. So at some point, they decided they needed a park that was befitting of the amazing city that they hoped to build this into. As luck would have it, the landscape architect Frederick Law Olmsted famous for designing Central Park in New York, was traveling in California. City leaders asked for his opinion about building the new park in the newly acquired outside lands. And he was like, oh, no, no, you can never build a park here. Trees won't grow in these sand dunes. So um, I recommend the other side of the city. City leaders did not like that recommendation. So instead of following Olmsted's advice, they found someone else who promised he could transform the dunes into forest a young surveyor from Stockton named William Hammond Hall. So how did Hammond Hall turn the Great Sandy Bank into this park that we know and love? Well, there's a legend about that. This is the story that we've heard a million times in various iterations, sometimes with less veritable facts. Legend goes Hammond Hall is out with his team surveying the land after the city designated it for the park in 1870. They've got their horses with them and one of the horse's feed buckets that hangs around their nose drops, and the barley that's in their feed spills out into the sand. And then, of course, you need a little fertilizer. You know, manure from the same horse that the barley fell out of the feed bag from landed directly on top of this little patch. When Hammond Hog comes back through that area in a week or so, the quick-growing barley from the horse's bucket has already taken root and is growing. And William Hammond Hall goes, aha, Uh this is going to be the secret recipe for how we tame these dunes. Because if you combine the quick-growing barley with native lupine here, that will sort of stabilize the dunes long enough to allow for these trees that he wanted to put through the park as windbreaks to grow. 
It's all a little convenient, isn't it? Nicole thinks elements of this story are true, but the mythical telling leaves out some context. First, historians have recently discovered that there was a farm on the eastern edge of the park that grew barley. So Hammond Hall probably already knew barley could grow here. And second, the process of reclaiming sand by starting with small, quick-growing grasses to build up topsoil before planting trees on top of them was already a well-established practice in Europe. As for the horse manure part of the legend, that is where we get to street sweepers. And no, I'm not talking about the kind that get you a parking ticket. It was common practice for the city to use horse manure they collected in the streets because this is still an era where people used horses on a daily basis. So it was a sort of thrifty way to fertilize city parks and areas around town. So that's how acres and acres of sand dunes were transformed into forest. No spit, but there was definitely manure. We were just about to ask Nicole about the park's many hills and dells when who should come strolling by but the guy who literally wrote a book on Golden Gate Park's history. Chris Pollock. Oh my God. <laughs> Hi, we're from Big Curious. <laughs> the park's historian in the park. Hi. <laughs> Hi. Lovely to meet you in person. What a coincidence. I've been gardening. Excuse my voice. Oh, you're fine. You, it's a happy meeting because in addition to the land reclamation technique Nicole has been describing, Hammond Hall did something else pretty ingenious when he was superintendent of the park. Chris Pollock calls it respecting the genius of the place. And what the genius of the place means is utilizing what you've got to work with to the best ability you can. Basically respect that the landscape looks the way it does for a reason. What that meant was a very efficient way of using the sand dunes as the existing topography for the most part to create this undulating kind of interesting landscape. Because to have it just flat would have been rather boring and counterintuitive to the idea of a sustainable environment. They knew that the wind coming off the ocean was their worst enemy. If they leveled the park, the wind would continue to push sand eastward and kill new plantings. In the area behind the sand dune, it wouldn't be so windy there. And it might be more hospitable to plant something there as opposed to on the windy side of the sand dune. So it was, there was a lot of selection being done. The hidden dells, small hills, and winding paths in the park are the result of using the genius of the place in the design. So Hammond Hall started greening the eastern end of the park, slowly moving westward. But he simultaneously took on the far west end, near the beach. Stopping the sand dunes from encroaching was critical to the success of the project. Here's Nicole again. He's like, okay, we're going to build a fence, and we're going to put the, the planks really close together, and the dunes will come up, and it will hit against that fence. As the sand piled up, it made a windbreak. And on the other side of the fence, you know, where the dunes aren't, we're going to start planting all these things, and it, it'll start growing up, and the dunes will come up to the top of the fence, and then we'll, we'll build the fence higher. Today, at the far western end of the park, you can still see Hammond Hall's idea at work. Large trees and bushes protect the intersections of the park from the sand that comes whipping across the Great Highway. And little sand dunes sometimes pile up at the park's edges. Within five years, San Franciscans were delighted by their new park. 
1875 article in the San Francisco Examiner said, Calling to mind the inhospitable, desolate aspect of the region a few years since, we cannot but regard with favor the result. Hammond Hall had the sand mostly under control, but something else had become unruly, the politics of the park. In general, there was a lot of graft in the city at the time, and William Hammond Hall didn't like it. So he tried to control what he could with his power as superintendent of the park. He fired a blacksmith for padding his contract, a blacksmith who, unfortunately for Hammond Hall, ended up becoming a state legislator. He sought his revenge by blocking funding for the park and accused Hammond Hall of misusing park resources. The allegations were completely false. However, William Hammond Hall had enough. In 1876, he resigns, and the entire park commission resigned because they're so disgusted by what they're seeing as politics getting in the way of a beautiful city park that the city wanted. The years that followed were bad ones for Golden Gate Park. Hammond Hall's plans were neglected. All of this sort of falls by the wayside because there's no money. And more people who come to power on the commission aren't there for the right reasons. Many men with railroad interests were appointed to the park commission. And lo and behold, a railroad gets built to the park and is barely taxed. And more buildings are popping up. All these things start to materialize that aren't the wilderness that was initially envisioned here. Though some of the park's most beloved attractions did come from this time period. You have the Conservatory of Flowers, which was a bunch of very wealthy men who purchased it from another wealthy man, uh, James Lick, who had passed away and gifted it to the city that put it here. Without a fierce defender of the initial vision for the park, tensions arose over what the park should be. A wild green space where people could connect with nature or a cultural center to showcase the growing wealth and power of the city. In 1890, the Park Commission promoted a man named John McLaren from assistant superintendent up to superintendent. John McLaren, I think he's one of the most universally beloved city employees of all time. They built him a giant house. McLaren Lodge was built in 1896 specifically for him. Many people think John McLaren was the first superintendent of the park. He wasn't, but he did continue to build it up in line with the vision Hammond Hall set forward. He just did it without making so many enemies. This is the most famous story you're ever going to hear when it comes to John McLaren, is he hated statues in the park. Hated them. So he would let them put it wherever it was. They always made a big deal. And then John McLaren would very quietly like, plant things around the monuments that would grow up over time and totally obscure them so you couldn't see them. You can still find statues nearly hidden by bushes around the music concourse today. McLaren worked in the park for more than 50 years, overseeing its transformation into the urban gem it is today. Millions of people visit the park each year. William Hammond Hall, on the other hand, often gets forgotten. But the two men had a lot in common. They really stuck to their principles. They didn't like graft. They didn't like to see people throwing their weight around for other reasons than making this park better. They were truly public servants who loved the park. Hammond Hall once wrote, With drives and rides for the rich and pleasant rambles for the poor, quiet retreats for those who would be to themselves, and thronged promenades for the gaily disposed, and open grounds for lovers of boisterous sports, and tracks adapted to the special wants of children, the modern urban park is, indeed, 
the municipality's open-air assembly room, acceptable alike to all and pleasing to each of her citizens. During our day in the park, it was inspiring to see how vibrant this place is. We saw school kids volunteering, cyclists whizzing by, couples out for a romantic stroll, and folks enjoying a quiet moment on a bench. It was clear the park is a place for everyone, just like Hammond Hall imagined it. I'm Katrina Schwartz. And I'm Olivia Allen Price. This story is the first in a six-episode series that's ultimately going to be part of our very curious Golden Gate Park walking tour. We'll be back on Monday with the next episode. Now, there are two ways that you can enjoy this series. You could listen along as we drop episodes over the next week, or you can wait until June 3rd when all the episodes are out, then head to Golden Gate Park with a friend and some headphones and experience the series as a six-stop walking tour. If that sounds fun, head to baycurious.org where you can find a map and learn more about the tour. And hey, you can always do both as well. Special thanks to Chris Pollock, whose book, San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, 1,017 Acres of Stories, has all kinds of fun facts about the park. And Nicole Meldahl, who you can hear on the Outside Lands San Francisco podcast. They go deep on the history of the city's western neighborhoods. And thanks to Brendan Willard, Sebastian Mignopuccelli, Kiana Mogadam, Sarah Rose Leonard, Lance Gardner, and Rebecca Cow for their help with this series. Bay Curious is made in San Francisco at member-supported KQED. Hi, Bay Curious listeners. Are you ready to play May's trivia game? Every month, we read a question here at the end of our episode. You can give us your answers over at our website, kqed.org slash baycurious, or just click the link in the episode description. Out of the correct answers, we'll randomly choose one lucky winner to receive a cool prize package with Bay Curious swag and Sierra Nevada goodies. Okay, our question for the month is, the world's longest-running pillow-fighting contest was held from 1966 to 2006 in what Bay Area town? Our trivia quiz is made possible by Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Good luck! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 